0: now hear this and wbru present unearthed this is Ooh, what it, or do you want to do you're listening to unearthed from now hear this and wbru
1: this i, I like that and, the second one I, I like yeah yeah the second one's good
0: um you're listening to unearthed From Now Hear This and WBRU. Episode 1. Nice to
1: meet ya. I'm Jackson, one of the producers of Unearthed. And you might be able to tell I'm not that smooth. I'm especially bad at the first interaction with people. And this is true everywhere from the grocery store checkout line to meeting new people at work. The worst though, is when I have to interview someone. If I need to get a lot of different voices for a story, like if there's a protest or people are camping out for the next iPhone, I'll scope someone out of the crowd and try to get as close as I can without being noticed. And then I'll do this awkward half wave and gesture to the microphone, and I'll say something stupid hi. like, Hi, hi I'm oh, Jackson hi. Cantrell hi. North State Public Radio. Uh, I was just following people around. I was wondering if you'd be willing to comment or? Hi. I was just following people around? Really? No matter how many times I've done this, I still get nervous every time. I'll just stand at the edge of a crowd for like 20 minutes knowing I need to get interviews and I'll just wait it out until the last possible moment. Does that sound familiar to you, Tammuz?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And also, hi, I'm Tammuz. I'm another executive producer along with Jackson at Unearthed. Producing radio in the 21st century can often feel like a really retrograde task. So, we wanted to think through how this difficulty permeates all relations. Our relation to the past, our relation to others, our relation to ourselves.
1: And today's theme is Nice to
2: Meet Ya. And we chose Nice to Meet Ya because we wanted to play off the Now Hear This Meets WBRU collaboration.
1: Which, if you don't know, WBRU is a music, radio station, and multimedia workshop in Rhode Island.
2: And now here this is a Providence-based audio storytelling collective. We also wanted to touch on the fact that we are missing meeting new people because of COVID.
1: In this episode, stories about meeting on the internet to find love, coming face-to-face with a younger version of your dad, and encountering a new way of thinking about the past.
2: But first we'll take you to southern california in 1997. here's now here this producer joanne introducing her story teenage superstar hey my
3: name is joanne huynh and this is teenage superstar this is a story about three asian american high school girls and their punk band called emily sassy lime thanks for listening Conversation that changed my life. It was with my friend, Amy, who's a fierce Asian American educator and a person I can always rely on to say the hard truths. We were in the middle of planning an event and I was getting frustrated. So many times during these planning sessions and like just in regular life, I get freaked out when I have to make decisions. I think I'm very worried about not doing things the way that I feel like they have to be done, even when I know they don't have to be done in like any particular kind of way. Well Eva interrupted me in the middle of all of this and said, You should just do what you want. You should just do what you, you should want. just do what you, you want. should just, you do,
4: should what just you want. do what you
3: want. I was like, hold up, what? Do what I want? Is that allowed? I know this sounds like I'm being super dramatic, but this was truly the first time that anyone had said anything like this to me and I just had no idea what to make of it. And then Amy kept going. Yeah, you should just dream big and go for it. Dream big and go for it? Isn't that kind of selfish, I wondered. But despite my initial resistance, I eventually realized, as I often do, that Amy was right. So many of the choices I'd been making had been driven by feelings of guilt shame and obligation that when confronted with the possibility of doing something that i actually wanted to do i had no idea what that was the more i thought about it too the more i realized that these processes of desiring and envisioning and dreaming are actually central to the world i want to live in everyone deserves to be able to dream big and go for it and in the beautiful freaky campy world i'm dreaming of we're all celebrated for these dreams My world before was so narrow because I didn't recognize the agency that I have. And now that I do, things feel so much more possible. So yeah, big shout out to Amy for changing my life and for helping me onto the path to find stories of people who are doing precisely this kind of liberatory, visionary work. The story I'm about to tell you now is about Emily sassy line. They're a band from the '90s heyday of Riot Girl, formed by three Asian American teenage girls from Southern California. Unbeknownst to their parents, would do things like sneak out of the house to go see concerts and play shows at punk clubs. Anyway, here's one of the members, Wendy Yao, who was 14 when the band started.
5: We we couldn't quite get it right for a long time from most of my childhood, and um, you know, and like we also just had like a really different family culture at home or disciplinary culture and like so socially we were kind of we were very very shy in elementary school every year in our yearbook if we look back on it like everyone's signature in our yearbook would say speak up like you know you're so quiet you know because we just like there's like a kind of yeah I mean like I think the shyness that my mom felt in terms of being an immigrant and not not feel like her English was good enough or whatever it was translated to us also kind of being very like very shy and kind of we were pretty nerdy Eventually, like, um, when we were, like, in our, you know, early teens, like, late middle school, early high school years, and discovering the world of, like, underground culture and punk and scenes and everything, it definitely was, like, a eye-opening kind of gateway into, like, A world in which people actually were finally speaking your language or, you know, people were speaking a language that you didn't even know existed, but Mm -hmm. like really put voice to things that we might have been feeling or wondering about, you know, articulating these kind of desires, interests, pains or or sorrow, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. those things were, especially like Riot Girls.
6: Always, since I was really young, for some reason, been really into music. You know, I love Michael Jackson and Prince. Like, I have this sticker book, and I wrote, like, I love you, Michael.
3: This is Amy Yao, Wendy's older sister. She was 15 when the band started. She and Wendy started getting into punk to escape the restrictive world of their high school.
6: It it changed... When I started getting into punk music mm-hmm. and like learning about feminism, like listening to lyrics of like Bikini Kill or bands like that, definitely like shifted my sense of like that you could find power within, mm-hmm. that you didn't have to fit in, and actually not fitting in was better. Like a lot of mm-hmm. our songs were about like. Fuck you, popular people. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> like, like, most of the gist of their
0: songs, like,
6: screw these popular people. Like, they're all fucked. Uh, yeah. Like, white man sucks, you know? And oh then, my like God. And I just remember being, like, so, like, yeah, finally. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, fuck them. I hate them. Because they were, like, torturing me and making me feel bad about myself. Well, it was just amazing to realize that you didn't... Like, I was like, before I felt like I was not friends with them because it was forced on me. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly I was able to decide that they sucked. That changed everything in my mind. Because before that, I just... It was like I was the victim, and I was like, oh, they're making fun of me, and I feel bad. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, no, these people are stupid. They're, like, following the norm, and they suck.
3: So with this newfound sense of freedom... Wendy and Amy dove deep into the world of punk. They started reading punk magazines, writing to pen pals, and going to record stores in Irvine.
5: We'd go there and often like ramp on eating lunch, like maybe save our lunch money and just bum a few tater tots off of someone else (laughs) instead of eating lunch so that we could like save those three dollars to buy a seven inch after school. Just things like that. And then, you know, at that same shopping center when we were like in line to get frozen yogurt, one day, like a girl in front of us turned around and was like I'm short twenty five cents. Can I borrow twenty five cents? And we we're like, sure. And it ended up being Emily. Oh my <laughs> God. That's how we. That's kind of where we, when we met her. <clears throat> Anyone with a clear identity, if you look at music, art, you have like a, a vocabulary, and you have a language to explain it and i know i did that through Zines, through obsessively writing the pen pals learning about worlds i wasn't living in and expressing what i believe to be my experience
3: this is emily ryan she was 13 when the band started she amy and wendy became quick friends and decided to form the band pretty much right after that first meeting
5: okay it's like you came with like um your superpower my superpower was like okay i think i have a rolodex. Oh, I think I have a good, good Rolodex. Do you know what a Rolodex is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so mm-hmm. I have a good Rolodex. And then you have Amy and Wendy who have their own network, whoever mm-hmm. they know. And they knew a lot of people. So when you would come together, you go, I think, you know, I think we're, we're onto something here. And then we just kind of like, we use that momentum and use our personalities and say, I think we have something to say. I think we have something. And it wasn't so hard because when bands came to town, we would say, we need to meet you. We mm-hmm. need to tell you our story.
3: Even after Wendy and Amy moved out of Irvine, they did whatever it took to stay together and play. Despite often being the youngest people in the room, together, Amy, Wendy, and Emily were a force to be reckoned with.
5: We'd write a lot of songs over the phone, and we'd write each other letters like every week and send each other packages and all kinds of things. Back then, the, the answering machine was like on a miniature cassette tape, and so we would like leave messages for each other. Like If one of us wrote a song part, we would leave it on the message so the other person could play it back on the cassette tape. And then start to figure out their part. And then a lot of times, like we'd write songs through the answering machine and then quickly practice it in the bathroom before the show and then play it for the first time on stage (laughs) using borrowed borrowed equipment. So obviously, you can imagine how not good that sounded (laughs) in terms of like musicianship or professionalism. And then if we did get together and we were practicing, like we didn't necessarily have real instruments. So we would like put rice into a jar and shake that and use chopsticks to make thick drums on a stapler and a lot of times it, there was like songs being written like that and they were being recorded. If it was at our house, like my, our family was like early adopters of Asian karaoke technology, you know, like so <laughs> there was this singlodian or something. And it was like mm-hmm. two cassette tapes with a microphone and a speaker built in. So we would use the microphone from that to record those things and just keep dubbing the tape over and over again until there was like really extreme hiss. And that was like mm-hmm. our demo tape or something. Oh. And then, um, it was kind of fun, even just, like, all those creative things you had to do to figure out to, like, to do the thing that you wanted to do. Like, I think that was part of it. Just all of the process, all of the ways that, that you could be creative and problem-solve and mm-hmm. figure out your way of, like, making the thing you wanted or the world you wanted or the just the hangout you wanted or whatever. So, yeah, it was a lot of it was just about having fun. I can't remember exactly how we first heard about the shows that were like more in LA, like at Jabberjaw, which is this all ages punk club that we ended up going to all the time and playing at a lot as well. But at some point, like we would like befriend older kids, mm-hmm. like seniors or juniors and seniors in high school, and try to talk them into driving us to the shows. And and mm-hmm. um, sometimes we'd have to pretend a different band was playing that they liked, but then like <laughs> trick them. You faked them like, out. I- Oh and we just my God. Get a ride. We're like, and we're like, we think so and so is actually gonna play, and they're like, okay, we'll try. And then we're like, I guess they didn't. I guess they not play. <laughs> oh <my laughs> God. Just like anything to get a ride.
6: Looking back on it, I think I was just like ignorant, and sometimes being ignorant really like helps. I felt like I remember going I think one of the first shows I went to in LA was at Jabberjaw, John and it was the Melvins and mm-hmm. I just remember thinking like everyone's like a giant mm-hmm. on heroes. <laughs> I was like kind of like amazed, you know? Like they were like heroin mm-hmm. characters <laughs> You're just, like, like, hi Mickey Mouse, can I take a photo with you? Oh my god. Like, this <laughs> so twisted. I have no idea what I was thinking, but That's like, so funny. you know, we just like go up to these people who are like complete strangers and like, tell them about school and how people were bullying us and stuff.
1: Oh <laughs> and my just, god. Like, like,
6: yeah, we hate all these people at our school. Our school sucks. Like, you know, and then they were just like totally supportive. That kind of like, um, like made me feel like oh I could keep doing this endlessly meeting these random strangers who were in band and telling them about how awful school was and then like they would be like nice.
5: I do remember we would always try to have the witty comeback and never take it and say you know what we didn't respond to that. Mm-hmm. We would even say we would find opportunity to stand up for someone else, knowing that we would probably get the brunt of it or be misunderstood or something. Something that was really identifying characteristic of, you know, me and Amy and Wendy is we were really able to Mm -hmm. rationalize and validate what we needed to do as a teenager. You know, the teenagers who are like those consummate salespeople who are like, nope, I need to do this and I need to do this and here are all the steps that I need to take to get X. We would always be able to do that. And I think that was the reason Mm -hmm. behind why we were able to teenagers, get a hotel room in Olympia and say, we need to be here. Really important for us to be at Yo-Yo Go-Go. Or, uh, or you know, in the same vein, have my dad lend me his car, his Toyota Cressida and and have us take it on a West Coast tour because we needed a car. It made more sense for us to you know, have a working car than borrow some broke down van. So I think, you know, in in so many um, instances, if you look back, the only way we got things done is because we were pushy and able to, you know, kind of articulate why we needed to do something. Or I think even more importantly, like why we needed to be seen, take up space. You know, all those things that Mm -hmm. people talk about now, we did back then. We were like, no, we need to be there. They need to know that, you know, we're a band. You know, those type of things, those type of messages. So having shows that people attended, that was really big because you you might not have seen a picture of us. Mm -hmm. That's not how things worked back then. You might not have known it was all three Asians. I have a name that does not reflect as Asian. But Mm -hmm. word of mouth gets around. People say, I got to check this out. I mean, we opened up for our first West Coast tour for Slater Kinney in their first incarnation. Yeah, it's so
3: crazy!
5: And they said, "Yeah, yeah, you need to, you need to play with us," you know. <laughs> so all of that support, I think, people wanted to champion us, which is so, so important. I think mm-hmm. that really goes a long way.
2: They got
3: really good at hiding their second lives from their parents, even though there were some pretty close calls.
5: If I needed to do my p on Saturday morning, but play a show after that, I made that happen. <laughs> And I, I delivered. I got a good score so that I would feel like, yeah, I got that done. That sort of helped keep us afloat. By no means were we sacrificing one for the other. Like we were not doing that poorly in school. So that, that, that probably was part of the magic, right? Yeah, um, if awesome. we were much too much of one way, I think it, it would have been easier, I think, for the parents to kind of um, step in. I still had this life of a nerd where, like, I was never invited to any high school parties mm-hmm. and didn't even know about them. I didn't really have friends at school. I ate lunch alone, like my senior year of high school, when my sister had graduated. I was still this nerd, and yet I was sneaking out of the house like, you know, average, like three nights a week to go see punk shows, to play shows. That's... We snuck out and went secretly on like a, a short mini tour up the West Coast first with Slater Kinney, yeah. and then up like to Northern California with Bikini Kill another time. Like we were doing like really fun things and mm-hmm. still like in a nerdy way, like like we didn't like drink or we weren't like doing mm-hmm. anything wild in that definition of wild. But then it was yeah. like kind of wild in the sense that like we went all the way up to like Olympia, Washington with, or Seattle without our parents knowing that we left the state. <laughs> there was probably like this like nervousness of like, Oh, are they going to find, I remember at the end, like when we recorded our full length record, We weren't paying that much attention to like the quality of the recording or any of that. We were just like, it was the end of our tour and we were like, I think our parents are starting to catch on that. Like we're not necessarily at like a math camp an hour away from (laughs) like, we're like really far, you know? And so we were like, we felt like we were like running out of time and we're just trying to get that record done as fast as possible and then get back home so we wouldn't get in trouble.
3: This was my favorite part of my interviews with them, listening to them recount the fearlessness of these girlhood years. But over time, the thing that became more and more important to me was the story of their friendship and the way that allowed them to do all this crazy stuff together.
5: We were best friends in a really intense way. And I think we were all really obsessed mm-hmm. with each other at mm-hmm. that time. And I think like my belief in confidence in like Amy and Emily, and I felt like they were really talented and they were really great people that should be writing songs or, like performing on stage that I was happy to be part of that. I never really thought I was that great it, but I was just like the three of us together as like three people who were best friends at that time, like created a certain swirl of energy that would just build up and be its own momentum that somehow made it so much more easy and organic to become someone that was more outgoing and performing on stage, even if it was my fully natural state of being. I don't think our goal was like to make, like to be the best musicians or to like have, A lot of fans or like whatever it might be like, I think our goal was to have fun and find an excuse to hang out with each other and um, experience things and connect with people that might be like minded. It was really just like an outlet to reaching a world that would feed us, you know, like music or culturally or making friends that would kind of feed all the things that we were hungry for because we, we weren't finding it in our direct home or like neighborhood or, you know, community life. Being kind of an outsider for so much of my life, you know, culturally um, growing up and being mm-hmm. told that like in a way we were shy and then we we're also told we were shy. And then we, mm-hmm. if we were like the o- some of the only non-white kids in school, you know, nobody said they had a crush on us because like we didn't count because we were like something else. Kind of being someone who like didn't have a voice and was outcast in the background for so long, you end up realizing, actually, I'm a person, I exist and I have things to say, too.
2: But sassy lime, I mean Wendy,
7: and
3: Amy. <laughs> me out loud. As someone who spent a lot of my life asking for permission to be myself, who still feels a lot of guilt and shame around not being the version of myself that I feel like I'm supposed to be, whatever that is, Emily's Sassy Lime came as sort of a miracle to me. I think so often, Asian American women and girls. And so many others in our communities, queer and trans people, people of color, immigrants, prisoners, disabled people. So many of us are told in very real ways that our voices don't matter, are shamed by our current systems into feeling silenced and small, or made to think that we only have value in certain ways. But as an Asian American woman, Emily's sassy line makes me want to dream up bigger, freer futures for myself than I would have thought possible growing up. I want this for everyone, and I truly believe that this is the path to a better world for all of us. But this story is for all of my Asian sisters, my aunties, mothers, elders, and chosen ancestors. Any of you out there listening to this, I just want to say, your voice matters, your dreams matter, and all of the things you want can be possible. Dream big and fucking go
1: for it.
0: Now, there are two kinds of first encounters in the next story you're about to hear. The story is from producer Zanab Kante. This is the first piece Zanab ever made, so in a way, she was meeting the practice of podcasting. But it's also about the feeling of reading something and everything suddenly clicking into place, of having a kind of intellectual meeting with someone you've never actually met in person.
8: Right now, I'm sitting in the Swear Center with my good friend and mentor, Marco. Marco and I are designing a curriculum based on the trivialized histories of African-American peoples, and we hope to teach this curriculum in a series of workshops to different middle and high schoolers. As I'm getting my laptop out of my bag to take some notes, Marco randomly asks,
4: Yo, Zanab, have you seen The Matrix?
8: So some of these clips have been recreated for dramatic effect and others are from a conversation that Marco and I had over the summer. Now Marco is really smart. He's a staff member at Swear Center and a grad student here at Brown. But he's also a little absent-minded and goes off on a lot of tangents. So much so that he sometimes forgets why. But most of the time, I just go with it. So I responded, no, I have not seen The Matrix. Marco then explains that The Matrix is the story of a computer-generated world designed to keep humans under the control of robots. But the humans don't know that they're being controlled. They just think it's reality. Then a man named Neo takes a red pill that lets him see clearly. Once he sees clearly, there's no going back. He has to work to fight off some evil robot dudes and uncover the truth to set people free.
7: This is your last chance.
8: So when Marco asks me,
4: "Nab, you want to take the red pill?
8: He was asking me if I wanted to see clearly. At that point, I still wasn't entirely sure what he meant, but I said yes anyway, and he suggested a couple of articles for me to read. The first one was by Jamaican scholar and intellectual, Sylvia Winter. It was called Sambo's and Minstrels. Sambo's and Minstrels describes how white slave owners created two opposing cultural ideas about black people, Matt and Sambo, to justify slavery. The former was a real person, while the latter was a fictional character. Some of the language is pretty theoretical and hard to understand, but don't worry. Marco and I will take you through it. If you ever hear a weird tapping noise, it's because Marco sometimes gets so enthusiastic that he starts to smack the table. So let's start with Nat Turner. Nat Turner was a preacher and enslaved black man. He used his education and eloquence to gather other enslaved folks for an uprising against their slave masters.
4: Nat does not need the master. Nat knows how to read. Nat can think. Nat is intelligent. He's smarter than the
8: white man. Nat and his followers rebelled in Virginia in 1831. They visited several plantations and killed about 60 people, most of them white. The rebellion scared white folks, but not just because of the casualties. But instead, because of what Nat's ability to think and act for himself meant for the slave society as a whole.
4: There can be no instance of, of a self-determining, independent, like, Negro who's working from his own autonomy. Mm-hmm. right? That, a, a, a Negro that does not need white society. Right. This is gonna, that's like jamming a spoke in the, something in the wheel, or something in the spokes of the wheel. You know, this is like messing up the computer code, like mm-hmm. a bug in the system. You can't have no independent, free Negroes running around that know they free, they free in their mind. Come on now. were you trying to run a slave society, you don't need any, you're trying to shut that down every time you see it.
8: The Virginia Assembly passed a bunch of new laws after Nat Turner's rebellion. The laws restricted slaves from learning how to read, White people passed these laws in the hopes of preventing another slave uprising. But these restrictions weren't enough because the white slave owner still had to deal with his own guilt in regards to the institution of slavery.
4: He, he got to do something with it. Right. He believes in it. Right. He, he's, all of his other writings and stuff come out of here and talk about this. Mm-hmm.
8: See, with the enactment of slavery and by dehumanizing Black people, white people are also dehumanizing themselves. Sylvia Winter calls this a contradiction that white people need to resolve. So white people imagine that black people aren't suited for freedom. White people imagine that black people are inferior, unintelligent, and incompetent. So this is where the creation of Sambo comes in.
4: When they create a Sambo, because Sambo's not real, they actually create a non-human. Mm-hmm.
2: You
4: seen the images of Sambo, we put, that's not even like, that's not even like a real black person anywhere.
8: If you Google Sambo Minstrel, you'll see some images of what looks like to me, a weird Teletubby. A monkey-like Black character with a large head, big lips, and massive eyes. Someone who's considered unintelligent and insufficient solely because that's what white people made him out to be.
4: Sambo is very irresponsible. Mm
8: -hmm.
4: Sambo's dumb, he's gonna hurt himself.
8: So he needs someone to take care of him, the white plantation owner. Sambo is always depicted with tattered clothing and a huge smile as if he's grateful and enjoying his captivity.
4: The slave master legitimated his own role as the responsible agent. He's not just being nice.
8: He's being responsible. He's being responsible! So the white man sees himself as the responsible father of Sambo. Just like when a father takes care of his kids, all of his actions are justified because it's for the child's benefit. At least that's how most people see it. So even if you're disciplining your kid, it's for a good reason.
4: I'm doing this for your good, all good, Sambo. Yeah. Listen to me.
8: Yeah.
4: I know. In in, in fact, you should be thankful, Sambo. Mm -hmm.
8: If you've ever heard of minstrel shows, this is exactly how they got started. Blackface minstrel shows became a stage for white people to actively engage with and reinforce their racist beliefs. By blackening their face with burnt cork as makeup and putting on a slave-like costume, a white performer could make the fictional character of Sambo reality. Minstrel shows became the most popular form of American entertainment.
4: You, you, you you the laziest man I ever did see. What's wrong with you and I? What's wrong with you? I'm tired, tired. Tired nothing. You you can do nothing longer than anybody I ever did see. But I don't feel well.
8: White people laughed together at this made-up version of black people. They thoroughly bought into this belief that black people lacked self-control and rationality. Sambo made them believe that black people's subordinate position in society was inherent.
4: The Sambo is not lacking intellectually, for example, because he just didn't have a book, right? Oh, if you give Sambo a book, he can fix his problem. Mm-hmm. That's just who Sambo is. You could put Sambo in a whole library and he won't learn to read. His his very essential human nature is not given. His faculties as a human is not given to learning and reading. In fact, to try to teach Sambo to read would frustrate Sambo.
8: Thinking of black people as inferior by nature helps white people resolve their guilt about making unjust laws. Let's return to Nat Turner's rebellion for a second and the laws that came out of it. The Virginia assembly passed laws punishing black people for reading. So fewer black people learned to read. Then white people pointed to the fact that fewer black people could read as a sign of inferior intellect this supposed inferior intellect continued to justify laws that marginalized Black people, from slave codes to Jim Crow to today. Winter describes this process as white people quote-unquote constructing evidence that Negroes lacked humanity and intelligence.
4: Like, I came into to these pieces after I had a lot of knowledge about African American history and mm-hmm. by the time I had, like, Red these then sort of like retroactively stuff started like pu- pulling me. It was like somebody had gave me all the pieces and I didn't have any instructions. Yeah. I was like, oh, I think this goes here. These things look like they're mad. I'm like, yeah. trying to put together a puzzle without the picture on the box. Yeah. And when I looked at these two pieces and I was like, oh, grass loads! And everything just automatically, I didn't even have to move pieces on the, on the board. It was like playing chess and pieces moving themselves. Like I was moving them with my mind. I was like, yo, everything makes sense now.
5: Mm -hmm.
4: You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm.
8: By everything, Marco means the dynamics of black-white racial relations throughout US history. Winter's article was my red pill. It helped me see how the belief that black people as inferior has sustained racism and white supremacy for generations and generations.
0: Hey there, Claire again. So I met Miriam in fall of 2018 and I made this piece in spring of 2019 and something crazy and beautiful and wonderful actually happened just a little bit after that. About six months after I made the piece, Miriam and Amin got engaged. Of course, they're not really able to see each other now because of COVID. He's still in Morocco and she's still in Florida, but you know, They're used to long distance. It's a Saturday night. Mariam Abella is sitting on her couch in Lansing, Michigan, swiping through Tinder, through photo after photo of white boys holding fish. Then she finds Amin. So all it said was Amin,
9: 28, and then had his pictures, and then it said less than a mile away from you.
0: Mariam doesn't usually swipe for people without bios, but this time she did. So they matched and started talking. I said,
9: "I know you're Moroccan because I asked him where he's from. He said Morocco. I said, "Oh, I'm half Algerian, that's really cool." Whatever. We went back to our normal conversation. So I knew he was of Moroccan origin. And then we were just talking and I was like, "So how did you end up in Lansing, Michigan? That's so odd." And he was like, "What is Lansing? I don't know that word." And I was like, "What do you mean? What is Lansing?" He's like, the- Lansing, I don't I don't understand what that word means. What does it mean?" And I said, where do you live? And he said, I live in Casablanca, don't you? And I said, no, (laughs) what are you talking about? He said, are you joking? He's like, I thought you were in Casablanca. My phone told me you were like a kilometer away from me. And I said, no, no, my phone told me the same thing. And he was like, oh, that's really disappointing.
0: And then he changed the subject and we kept talking. (laughs) 4,092 miles. That's the distance between Lansing and Amin's home in Casablanca, Morocco. So when it said one mile, that was Tinder messing up.
9: I had a date with another guy on Tinder and I canceled it. I had other matches and I just turned my Tinder off. I was just so happy. I was like, even if nothing comes of this, I'm getting so much fulfillment just from our conversations. At the same time, I had already bought my plane ticket to come to Morocco and I was like, that's kind of weird.
0: Miriam had already planned a trip to Morocco before matching with Amin. But she hadn't just bought her plane ticket. She'd made a travel budget, booked accommodations, and even made plans to work at a language school in Amin's city. Mariam chose Morocco because her family is Algerian. She and Amin talked a lot about their shared culture, and he helped her practice Arabic, which she'd studied in college. Seven months of video calls and Google translated texts later, Mariam boarded her flight to Casablanca.
9: Initially, I really didn't want him to pick me up from the airport. I told him, no, I'll take a taxi. And you can meet me at my Airbnb so I can like unwind a little bit after traveling for 20 hours. And he was like, absolutely not. He's like, I'm picking you up from the airport. You're coming to a new country and you don't have family here. There's no way you're taking a taxi. And I was outside of the Casablanca airport and he was coming to pick me up. I was so nervous. I felt like my stomach was just going to fall out of my body. So I was trying to call him and, and tell like explain something to him of where I was and he was like, tell me what you see. I didn't notice that he like had come and was walking up to me and I'm looking down at my phone and like, I just feel someone hug me really hard. <laughs> and he was like, Miriam! I was like, oh my God, hi. And I was just so like, uh tired and exhausted and happy and flabbergasted, everything at the same time. And he took my bag and we went to his car and we were just, you know, He kept, when we were driving back to the city, he just kept, like, looking over at me and smiling, and I felt, I was, like, sweaty because the airport was really hot, and it was hot outside, and I was just like, oh, I just want to take a shower, I feel gross, and and I said, you know what, it's okay, I'm happy, he's happy, it's fine, Um, and then we went to my Airbnb, and we just, like, sat and talked for hours and hours, and then he was like, we should go eat something, I was like, I'm not, oh my god, it's been five hours, yeah, we should go eat something. I was in the Airbnb for five days before I came to the school. Every day he would go home for like an hour or two to see his family, and then he would come back. And he he just stayed with me, because this is like seven months that we've been waiting to be together. And, um, and then when I came to the school, obviously he went home. I was staying here at the apartment at the school.
0: That school is where I met Miriam. We work there every day from four to eight, helping Moroccan students practice English in exchange for accommodation. Sometimes Miriam would rush in just before class, breathless from an afternoon at a cafe with Amin. And when classes ended and we poured out into the street, there he'd be, smiling and leaning against his car.
9: We spend most of our time laughing. We
0: went to eat lunch at the
9: port, and he was sitting next to me, and he started tickling me. And I was like, why are you tickling me here? We were sitting at the port eating and he held up his, his index finger, and he said, I'm sorry. He said, I didn't tickle you. He said, my finger has its own brain. I didn't tell him to tickle you. He just he just did it. I'm so sorry. And he just does silly things like that. I was in his car, and, and saying bye to him, he had to leave to go get his mom from work. And I opened the door, and he started reversing while the door was open. And I said, what are you doing? Let me get out of the car. He said, it's not me. It's the car. The car doesn't want you to leave. So it's just driving on its own. I can't control it. He just, he makes me happy all the time. A couple days ago, we had a little bit of a conversation, and I kind of asked him, like, what are we going to do when I leave? Like, you know, we are so used to seeing each other every day, being together all the time. It's going to be such a shock when when I leave. I mean, we were apart for almost seven months, but that was before we had met in person. And now it's different. We're, you know, almost three months, we're used to seeing each other. Like, how are we going to go from that to you know having an ocean between us and he we were sitting in his car and he opened up the open of the glove box and he took out a letter and a ticket and I looked at the ticket and it was a ticket for the Spain versus Morocco game in Russia and a letter from world cup administration with his name and address on it and giving him instructions on how to use the ticket. And I was like, Amin, what is this? I said, you didn't go to Russia. You didn't go to the World Cup. Why do you have this ticket? What is this? And he said that for a few months before he met me, he had been planning and saving to go to Russia for the World Cup. Um, He went to the Russian consulate. He got a visa. And in Morocco, getting a visa is a very, very grueling and difficult process. You basically have to show them everything in your life and prove that you're not going to stay there. Um, And it's difficult and it's expensive. And he said that he uh, organized with the tour group. He was going to go for five weeks, stay for the entire World Cup, do some sightseeing. I think he was also going to France for a little bit, too, in the same trip. And um, going to see Morocco play in the World Cup, because this is the first time Morocco's been in the World Cup for a long time. And he said, after meeting me and, and finding out that I was coming here, he canceled the whole trip because he wanted to save the money for spending it with me. And, and you know, he knew we were going to be traveling to Marrakesh and going to different places. And even just being here in Casablanca, he, he wanted to save the money because I was coming here. And I just started sobbing because this man loves football like no other. And I cannot believe everything that he had to go through for that trip. And then he just canceled it without a thought. And when I started crying, he said, why are you crying? He said, I showed you this because I want to reiterate to you how much I care about you, not to make you upset. And he said, and I haven't regretted it for a second. He said, there's literally not one moment that went by that I regretted this decision to not go to Russia. I'm very happy that I didn't go. I would much rather be here with you, and you make me happier than, than Russia could ever make me.
0: When I think about Tinder, I usually think about casual college hookups, Or the awkwardness of a first date. Never about fate. The app is set up to make you think you're in control. Yes to this person, no to that one, with just a flick of your thumb. Meeting Mariam and Amin, watching them together, reminded me to let go a little. That I'm not in control. That sometimes, the very best things, things you might not even have believed possible, just happen to happen. Like falling in love with someone 4,000 miles away because of a glitch in a dating app. When we went to Marrakesh, we did a trip into
9: the desert. When you're there, it's near a place called Merzuga. You can see all the stars uninhibited. There's no lights for miles and miles and miles. There's no light pollution. It's one of the places in the entire world where you get the best view of the night sky. And... I've never seen stars like that in my life. And we got a big blanket and we we walked up to the top of one of the dunes and it was really cold. We were laying down together looking at the stars. And it was the first time he told me he loved me under the stars. He said, I've been wanting to tell you for so long, but I wanted to wait until we were here under the stars together.
3: Do you think there like has to be a host or do you like shows that kind of have no like sort of lead figures?
6: Hmm. I honestly think I like the lead figure. I think it's nice to have someone who's carrying you through every episode. Mm-hmm.
3: And like, what is that person um, saying that kind of like makes you hold on to their character?
1: It's like, I think giving their own opinion is good. That was Elisa trying to tease out what makes a good podcast could be useful. Up next, Liza Edwards-Levin digs up her dad's journal from college and decides they're going to read through it together.
7: I had never kept a journal before, so it starts during the summer of my senior year. And it starts as, I think, a letter to my high school girlfriend. And (laughs) I start out by saying, I'm not sure whether this is to be a letter to you or just a quote-unquote journal for me. I'm not really sure what the quote-unquote part means, but I think I'll send it to you.
10: My dad, David, started writing in his journal for the first time when he entered college. He never sent it to his girlfriend after all. He found it in the bottom of a storage bin this year, 40 years later. Growing up, Dad and his family spoke in a vocabulary of optimism, smoothing over mistakes and imperfections. But Dad was nervous to start college.
7: Now I'm writing to you for a number of reasons. First, I want to think about what's going on around here. And I can best think to myself when I'm speaking slash writing to others. Secondly, I want to try and consider what I feel slash think about our relationship. And thirdly, okay, this is like so utterly (laughs) cringe-inducing. And thirdly, I would rather do the two above on the record so I can look back at this in the future. Oh my God, here we are. Since I'm writing, I might as well write to you so you can both know what I'm thinking and feeling and so I don't have to spend hours upon my return to you trying to explain what I'm thinking now. Is this coherent? Question mark. Okay, that's the first paragraph.
10: Wow. I write in my journal every night at college, and every entry starts with the same words. At the top of the page, I write the phrase, scared of, dot, dot, dot. Then I list every fear I can think of. Most nights, my fears fill at least a whole page. Scared of being uninformed, bad dreams, falling away into the moment, scared of aging, Scared of scary people. I used to journal in full sentences, fleshed out stories, highlighting the features of my day like a resume. But journaling that way felt too much like applying for an internship. So at college, every day here packed with checklists and people time, I started journaling in fears instead. Mistakes, questions without answers, anything that doesn't make sense. Writing my fears down doesn't make them go away. They're all on the page, documented, real. Not less scary, but more concrete. After I name every bullet point, I can put my fears to bed for the night because I know what to call them. Scared of the word entrenched. Scared of the word deficit and all it stands for. Scared of the word relapse. Scared of fears. The Fear, with a capital F. Scared of the too much. I don't know what that is. Like Dad's journal, mine is full of angst.
7: Right, so now it's August 24th, and it says, first writing from Brown, and then in parentheses, (laughs) FWFB, which I think was witty, like first writing from Brown, FWFB. Oh, it
0: stands for first writing Writing from from Brown. Brown, Exactly.
7: (laughs) It's a genre. Um, (laughs) Okay, it's 11 a.m. on the 24th, a Sunday, and the halls are very quiet because everyone partied last night until quite late and is therefore sleeping late. So, a recount of the past almost two weeks, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) I arrived late on the afternoon, early evening of the 11th and got to my room and met John and Keith across the hall endured the first evening without much event. My second day was painful. I was, and perhaps still am, quite upset and depressed that the transition to, quote-unquote, college life was not to be given to me on a silver platter, but was instead something which I would have to make for myself.
1: Oh!
10: Oh. (laughs) Oh! Dad and I both spend most days ready to report on everything good. I catch myself doing it on the phone with him, smoothing over the edges, telling and retelling glowing stories. Maybe it's an inherited trait. So when we journal, we try to figure out what's really going on here.
7: For the first time in a long time, in memory, I think, I was put into a situation of not knowing anyone and having to make acquaintances. I just want to point out that anyone is underlined and make is underlined (laughs) and having to make acquaintances and try to find friends. (laughs) The The trouble with that being that while one can meet people, one can't really become real friends in one night. And so I was really very lonely. More than that, however... I was put into an unreasonably new situation, new environment, new people, new lifestyle. The recurring thought which nagged me was the absence, okay, again in quotes, the absence of the luxuries of home, end quote. (laughs) Not only the luxuries of privacy good food, good discussion, etc., but also the luxuries of such wonderful friends, really good friends, with good underlined. For some reason, I had expectations of Brown being a school of unbelievable individuals, no mediocrity, and that I would therefore have no problems adjusting, being far too interested and fascinated by the abundance of good people. Instead, I found the same normal people I found at home, Nothing exceptional, at least nothing outstanding. And yet, I did see people making friends, having a great time together, and so obviously something was wrong with me, not with the environment. Oh! (laughs)
10: semester of freshman year dad repurposed his journal as a project for his philosophy 8 class he titled it a journal of thoughts and ideas when he turned it in to his professor at the end of the semester he felt proud then came summer
7: i got my commented journal back from juan ed pasquale and i remember i was crestfallen because i thought it was like a journal of utter profundity and i think he wrote back saying that, you know, he thought it was rather self-indulgent. who the funk?
10: Maybe self-indulgent is exactly what Dad needed his journal to be, even if his thoughts and ideas weren't breaking new philosophical ground. A little cringy, sometimes a lot cringy, but letting himself journal alone. I think Dad was being kind to himself. The fears in my journal don't belong at the dining hall table because I wouldn't know how to say them out loud. Scared of self-centeredness um coldiness behind complexity of communication changing friend dynamics scared of zoning out scared of bland scared of not doing enough too much scared of the jitters and inner what ifs and balance or lack thereof scared of commitment scared of a lack of motivation okay here i was writing about a boy i wrote in many ways immensely grateful and yet you know scared of food sometimes Scared of work sometimes. Scared of the future. Scared of all the things. Rain freeze moment. So tired. Everything happening. that was a big night. Oh, I remember. I think I wrote that at like 4 a.m. Dad doesn't journal anymore. As he got older, he found other ways to understand what's going on around him at the end of the day. For a while, that space was therapy. Now, that space feels more fluid in his life. It could be the kitchen with mom email exchanges peppered with all caps, words, and dot-dot-dots, or marathon phone calls with a college friend. It could be his own head. This semester, I expanded my journal routine. After my fears, I draw a plus sign, and I list things I want to remember. Meals, one-liners, gossip, lingering questions, songs that stick. It's become a way to remind myself, this is real too.
1: This episode of Unearthed was produced by Claire Boyle and Tamus Frankel. I'm Jackson Cantrell. You heard Teenage Superstar by Joanne Wynn, The Matrix by Zanab Conte, Under the Stars by Claire Boyle, and Journal for Me by Liza Edwards-Levin. Unearthed is a production of Now Hear This and WBRU.